0: And welcome to a special edition podcast, where we're going to discuss all things Carmignac Patrimon. I'm your host, Frank Talbot, and joining me is Didier Saint-Georges, who sits on the group's investment committee. Didier, thanks for joining me.
1: Hello, nice to
0: be with you. Uh, so let's get straight into it. The portfolio has undergone something of a facelift in recent years. David Older's is joining uh, long-serving manager, Rose Wabber on the team, giving the equity portion a more modern look, greater emphasis on technology stocks, and the changing world we live in today. The portfolio has a history of adaptability and uh, navigating change well. You don't get much more changeable than today. So how has the portfolio fared in the COVID-19 health crisis?
1: Well, I I would say that the the fund, Carminac Patrimoine, has done its job uh, since it is in positive territory uh, year to date, uh, which clearly is not the case of all uh, of the competitors of, of this fund, if you look at the Morningstar uh, Euro moderate allocation category, which is, is part of, uh, well, the, our fund beats 97% of the members of its uh, category year to date. Uh, and what's interesting is that if you look at more uh, um, sort of a refined indicators like volatility year to date as well, you know, the fund beats 90%. Uh, of its category uh, for, for volatility, and if you look at max drawdown, it beats 86% of its of its category. So yeah, I think the I think the fund is uh, is definitely doing its job.
0: What do you put that down to that resilience?
1: Well, interestingly, the um, the kind of uh, market we've had since the beginning of, of the year is uh, is is an excellent test for the uh, um, for two things probably. One is uh, the discipline, you know, how do you um, stick to the mandate of the fund? You know, how do you make sure that the reasons why clients uh, entrusted you with uh, their money um, is really t- to the p- top of your mind when when you make decisions? And so clearly, when there is a crisis unfolding, you know, you really have to focus on what is the mandate of the fund. Uh, and the second thing is really flexibility. You know, flexibility is written in the prospectus of uh, most funds, but, but surely when you have this kind of market instability or volatility, uh, then being flexible is, uh, you know, is is really absolutely mandatory. It's not enough to put it in the prospectus. So I think that the fund basically uh, did well at this time uh, again, like in two thousand and eight, uh, because both of its discipline and and its real uh, flexibility.
0: So compared to the two thousand and eight financial crisis, uh, which you obviously did very well in, you know, how has this stood out as different to those years?
1: The comparison is is of course inevitable. Uh, you know, these are two uh, huge shocks. Uh, the big difference, as we all know, being that back in two thousand and eight, it was you know pretty much an internal shock. Uh, it was the, you know, the banking system that got really imbalanced and progressively moved into a, a major crisis so in a way you know, we, we could see it coming um, and and that's what we did at the time this time around it was an external shock not nobody really could could, could see coming um, so it was very different in that sense except that uh, crises, even when they, they look different they have similarities and in this particular case uh, I, w- I would say the experience of 2008 was quite uh, useful in helping us uh, navigate this one uh, correctly again. Number one, because um, uh, the propagation of a crisis uh, within a very uh, interconnected system um, follows a non-linear trajectory. And whether you're talking about the banking system in 2008, uh, which propagated to a global financial crisis, uh, or whether you're taking in, talking about uh, 2020 with a viral uh, epidemic that moves into a, a pandemic issue because 2020 is not 2003. It's not the SARS situation anymore when China was a lot less interconnected to, to the rest of the world. Uh, so if you, if you were aware of this very... Uh, Different situation this year. You could anticipate that this movement would uh, really accelerate, and, and that matters because when you have this kind of nonlinear propagation, very often everyone ends up being behind the curve. You know, governments, uh, uh, you know, health systems are not prepared for exponential growth, they're always behind the curve. And so it matters very much when you're an asset manager or a risk manager as we are, uh, you have to be very quick because things move faster than, than the market expects usually. And the second thing I would, I would argue um, also compares to, uh, to 2008 is that at the time, you know, policymakers were totally surprised. Um, It was very interesting. Uh, We all remember that in 2008, when uh, Lehman Brothers was declared bankrupt, the policymakers had no clue, you know, the impact it would have on markets. Now interestingly, this time around, um, you know, it was quite clear that policymakers had understood that they had to react very quickly if they were faced with a a major financial risk. And therefore, when in March, we had the first hint. That uh, you know, central banks and the Fed in particular would would start reacting. You know, it was a pretty um, uh, convincing signal that um, that the financial crisis by itself, not necessarily the pandemic, but the financial crisis, would be dealt with, and that gave us a very strong signal that we had to take risk again, that we had to play a, a recovery of markets again. So, uh, uh, you know, learning from. Uh, the experience of 2008, you know, we, we got the sense that things were to go very fast, and so we had to be truly flexible. And number two, that if the, uh, you know, the health systems were not prepared, central bankers were prepared, and therefore, when they would act, uh, they would act quite uh, efficiently. And so that enabled us both to, uh, uh, to limit the risk on the downside and, and capture the recovery reasonably well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was categorized by that sharp sell-off do you think that's a blueprint for central bank action in the future? Going in hard when times are tough?
1: Well, they don't really have the choice. What, what's interesting, of course, is that uh, it's been 10 years now since uh, central banks have, have realized that uh, they have to try to administer the markets, you know, to manage the markets, uh, I should say. Uh, you know, 2018 had already been a test where you know central banks tried to uh, walk out from the situation and, and, and the markets uh, very quickly told them, well, sorry, central banks, you, know, you, you have to remain involved. So they don't really have the choice. So I think it is a blueprint for future action. The only question is, you know, will there be a time when their action would lose a lot in efficiency? And, and that would be, uh, you know, a, a clear issue. But in terms of the determination of central banks to step in when necessary, uh, I think they've understood that they don't have the choice.
0: So, bringing it back to the patrimonial portfolio, how did the balance of the portfolio change during the sell-off and, and subsequent rally?
1: Well, interestingly, uh, going into the the crisis, so we were at the end of two thousand and nineteen, beginning of two thousand and twenty, um, we had our doubts. About what everyone was uh, seeing as uh, you know a major economic recovery in two thousand and twenty, you know, our, our sense was that yes, there would be uh, you know, some some degree of recovery, but we were quite convinced that um, the mini economic cycle that, that could be expected would be would be quite moderate because of the level of debt because of a Demographics because uh, growth is, is just a scarce element in, in the global economy these days, and therefore you know we, we had a portfolio that was much more structured around uh, secular growth you know, visible growth as opposed to uh, you know, cyclical sectors um, so uh, clearly, when uh, the economic crisis hit, um, we were firmly. Uh, in the camp of just sticking to visibility and, and circular growth and certainly not, of course, you know, going for uh, you know, value sectors or uh, cyclically sensitive uh, sectors. So we stuck to that, uh, we stuck to that, that view. Um, in order to capture with some beta you know, the recovery as from uh, the end of March, uh, tactically we bought some exposure to cyclical sectors, mostly via futures. Because these are short-term trades, uh, so mostly via futures, um, we still have some of those you know, to capture some recovery of the, the really bombed out cyclical sectors. But uh, clearly, when you look at the backbone of the uh, equity portfolio, it is definitely still centered on high visibility, secular growth uh, themes.
0: Looking through some of the materials, I can see that the equity exposure of the portfolio dropped quite significantly in March. You know, how did you achieve that? You're not selling all of your equity positions,
1: right? We we were quite convinced that the uh, the, the the core holdings we had, really centered on high high visibility, uh, were the ones we uh, we had the highest convictions on, and we want to we wanted to to hold on to. So the reduction in the net equity exposure of the fund uh, was done via. Um, equity futures on the large indices. You know, we wanted to hedge the market risk, which we considered was, was very, uh, very strong, but we wanted to uh, uh, really hold on to our uh, long-term convictions, which is pretty much the way we always manage risk uh, and we, we don't want to play around with our convictions. We just want to uh, make sure we feel very good, very strongly about what we own and then we manage the market risk by using um, index uh, equity futures.
0: And was that a net beneficiary to the portfolio?
1: oh definitely i mean uh, uh, the the whole point of having uh, those high quality names in the portfolio was that uh, there was a very very strong alpha generation uh, since those uh, stocks you know outperformed you know very much the uh, the indices during during that period that that was uh, and and again during a crisis that that's what we do you know that's what we did in 2008 that's what we did in 2011 which is that we, we really stick to our convictions and we hedge the market risk. And the
0: difference between the two is,
1: is the alpha generation.
0: Uh, and did you have a similar derivatives overlay going on in your fixed income portion? On the fixed income side, we had
1: a lower exposure um, initially, since as I said earlier, we, you know, we didn't have such a great um, view of the economic cycle that was going to prevail in 2020, but we did have some credit exposure, which, yes, uh, likewise we we hedged uh, through um, uh, derivative products, you know, simple derivative products. What was interesting in the credit book is that when we felt that it was time to uh, take advantage of really uh, depressed prices in the market, so we are basically Uh, end of March, beginning of April, not only we could take out the hedging, but also, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to buy uh, actual uh, credit names, uh, which our credit analysis, you know, indicated that really the uh, default risk was uh, um, uh, priced excessively by by the market. So it created really very, very interesting uh, opportunities in in that part of the uh, in that part of the market. That, that's really one of the asset classes that we used you know, quite aggressively to uh, take advantage of the, the recovery in markets.
0: Is it fair to say that was a once-in-a-lifetime buying opportunity for a sort of investment grade? I
1: don't know if it's a once-in-a-lifetime, but, <laughs> but it was definitely a, a, a case where part, partly because of a lack of liquidity you know, some uh, some prices got really out of whack with uh, actual financial reality. That you know, credit is really uh, an asset class where analysis, you know, research, credit analysis can really make a big difference if, uh, if you're convinced that, that indeed the, the market is just being irrational, is panicking, and you are doing your homework and you can reach a very firm conclusion that a company is not going to default, uh, whereas the pricing of its credit uh, reflects a very high probability of default, well, in that case, you know, you can really have a strong conviction.
0: But the resulting rally was, was astonishing. You're not going to see that very many times. Would you say it's one of the most mispriced areas following the, the sell-off?
1: Yeah, it probably was. Um, the The interesting thing, again, is that when you when you buy equities, you're exposed to market sentiment when you buy, but you're still exposed to market sentiment uh, the, you know, the day you want to sell. Uh, in credit, um, it's different. You know, you can really make a, a strong view here because basically you're. Uh, analyzing the risk of default. And so if you're right, uh, whatever the market, you'll be able to get your money back when, when the, uh, the credit expires. So when it comes to playing a recovery in very volatile market, your credit can be a, a much more uh, uh, potent way of being contrarian. And uh, and really sticking your neck out and make strong uh, make strong investments, which is which is what we did. And it took a few weeks to to pay off, uh, but progressively as the markets became more rational, those credit investments you know started to do very well.
0: You mentioned the recovery there. Uh, what's the coming period going to look like? You know, how are you positioned? Is it for a bleaker economic environment going forward?
1: Well, in in Europe, the response from from the governments. Um, is is not going to be uh, you know, very time constrained because uh, the central bank for the time being is uh, is basically uh, carry, doing the, the the heavy lifting um, so uh, it, it's uh, the central scenario for europe is, is probably a, a a slow recovery next year um, as as you sort of expect usually from europe coming out of a of economic uh, an economic shock uh, in the U.S. the visibility uh, is is not so high to be to be honest because you know number one for any region uh, it's true of course but uh, making an economic forecast assumes that you're making a, a forecast on the virus itself and and the reality is that the situation remains you know, uncertain in the U.S. at this stage in particular in the Sun Belt uh, region. So that, that, that part to start with that doesn't give us you know, total comfort here. And second, clearly, um, you, you have a possibility of a fiscal cliff you know, in a couple of months. Um, so that means the U.S. Congress is going to have to reach uh, an agreement in short order, you know, in order to, to avoid this fiscal cliff and have yet an additional fiscal package to, to support the economy. Uh, and number three, of course, you have the elections. And uh, depending on the outcome of the elections, you know, if uh, if Joe Biden is elected, the, the tax situation in the US, you know, could be different and could have an impact in particular on uh, you know, companies' uh, capital expenditures. So the, the visibility, to be to be fair, is is not uh, is not very very uh, convincing to us, and that's why we keep um, very much to our uh, portfolio construction, the way I described it earlier, really centered on the medium term. Uh, growth compounders, you know, the ones for which we do not have to make strong macroeconomic assumptions uh, and for which the, the earnings growth is, is very much dependent on the, uh, on the quality of the services, the quality of the product, the management, the market share gains. And that, that's where we believe we can, uh, can really do well over the medium term.
0: Reflecting on the past couple of months, you know, we're recording this in uh, the end of June, uh, what have you learned? What's the, 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 the lessons that, as a house, that you, you've taken from it?
1: Probably the the lessons uh, you, you learn from a crisis are always the same. And you know, clearly, it's not been the, the first crisis, and it certainly has not been the first ones we we've uh, we've navigated. And it's 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 pretty much always the same lessons. You know, one is you have to be very disciplined because mistakes, uh, of course. Are very expensive a, during a crisis, so you do have to be extremely uh, disciplined. Um, the second thing is, I think I mentioned that earlier. You do have to uh, to be truly flexible. You know, being able to hedge the market risk uh, when you have such sharp market movements is part of your mandate. You know, is part. Of your obligation or moral obligation towards your your clients. So, flexibility is really the acid test uh, provided by by a crisis. And and third, and this crisis is a good example of that, third is uh, to be open-minded because even if crises have similarities, and we've mentioned that, um, they're always different and uh, a catastrophe really happens when you apply old recipes to uh, to a new crisis. So you you have to see what's different, and uh, and make sure that you don't uh, uh, you know manage the previous crisis, but uh, address the, the the crisis with an open mind.
0: Didier, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you.